I love the church. I love the Christian church. Now, before I tell you why, let me just say that I am fully aware that this may not be your position. This is certainly not the majority position of the city or the country that I live in. And given what has taken place in the current political landscape and in current events, failed leaders, identification, whether real or perceived to the Republican Party and Donald Trump, the tragedy of the residential schools, however you may understand the Christian church, your view of the church may be somewhere in the spectrum that includes indifference, disdain, pity, anger, bitterness, resentfulness, or even hatred. And yet, I love the Christian church. You might be skeptical of uh, me saying that. You know, I'm going to encourage you to do the same, and I have a vested interest, right? I mean, I pastor a church, so I have to say I love the church. But I really do. I haven't always thought the best about the church. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, and so every Sunday, I had no choice but to go with them to church. And being a pastor's kid was, to me, not necessarily a privilege, but a burden. I was expected to be a good kid. I laugh about it now. Um, as a young boy, one time I was a little too chatty in a Sunday service when my dad stopped his preaching, called me out, and told me to be quiet. Another time, I had the hiccups, and again, my dad stopped in the middle of his preaching to suggest I go get a drink of water, to which, in my innocence, and I am told this because I was quite young, I replied, no thank you, causing the whole worship center with its 200 or so people to erupt in laughter. Funny memories now, but maybe not so much then. I don't want to present my father in a bad light. He was an amazing dad who invested heavily in his kids, so... What made the church less than desirable for me was when he was pastoring and I was older and in my middle teens and able to understand a little more what was going on in the church, I could see my father was being treated cruelly and deeply wounded by a small group of people within the church that he was pastoring. It was hard for me to equate what I saw, what was going on, with any representation of Christ. But that was now part of my picture of the church. The idea of being a leader in the church? I mean, who would want that? And yet here I am. In my early 20s, I can't really explain it except to say that it was God's grace drawing me into a deeper relationship with Him. I was going to university, living on my own, and I couldn't escape this growing hunger for God. And through that, I met some people who exhibited a fresh faith in Jesus, causing my desire to grow even more. And then it's as if the Spirit of God fanned my thirst to crazy. I was reading my Bible into the late hours, and I encountered His Spirit in a way that has marked me to this day. And in the process, it's like I knew that I knew. I was called to lead in the church. Learning later, that means to love it. I went from, who would want to do that, to knowing that this is what I was destined to do. That's my story. I've pastored in different seasons in my life now, and it has not always been easy. There have been good times, but also times of hurt, harsh criticism, extreme stress, disappointment. I mean, it's been hard sometimes. And I say this not looking for sympathy, but because I want you to know that the reason I love the church and intend to do that until the day I die is not driven by some romantic or perfect experience of the church, but driven by my relationship with God and what He says and feels about the church. Sometimes it takes time for understanding to catch up with the calling. 
And when God intersected my life, I knew I was called to the church, but it has been a journey to understand from Scripture more deeply how important that church is to God. God has a perspective on the church. I love Him, so I want my perspective to reflect His. I'm taking us to the book of Ephesians chapter 3 today to get a glimpse of that God perspective. Ironically, this is written by a man who once had a view of the church and Christianity that was so vitriol that he was moved to actively do damage to Christians. And then he met Jesus. Soon he was made to understand who Jesus was, the, the promised Savior whose life, death, and resurrection had become good news, what we call the gospel, because it means forgiveness and new life to all who believe. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul actually does that in this letter. Preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He is writing to the church in Ephesus, which is primarily comprised of non-Jewish people. Most of Paul's words to this point have gushed about how blessed we are, how lavishly we are blessed by God in Christ Jesus. But as one scholar put it, the Ephesian believers were losing altitude. That is, in their thinking, they were losing their place in the story of God. In this series, we have already seen how easy it is to do that. That in our relationships with God, there's a greater, God has a greater vision than we aspire to. We get busy or we're tired or wounded or we're cynical, experiencing so little of the more that God actually wants for us in our marriages, in our families, and yes, in our churches. Paul wants to illuminate again for us God's higher calling for us and for the church we are made to be part of. In verse 9, he says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul uses some very important words and heady language as he talks about the church. Plan, mystery, eternal purpose. These are somehow connected to the church. But before we dive deeper into that, let's first be clear on what the word church means. It is not a building. That is why throughout the pandemic we have said the building may be temporarily closed, but the church isn't. Church is not a Sunday service. The fact that we have not been able to meet at a location on a specific day to worship and experience God's word and community together has not meant the church did not exist the last number of months. Building and services facilitate the good and health of the church, but they are not the church. Church. It comes from the word ecclesia, which means a gathering or assembly of people. Very simply, the church is people. That is why at the front of our building, it says Central Heights meets here. Church is comprised of a certain type of people, those who believe the gospel and as a result are connected by their trust in Jesus Christ. And the Bible uses the word church to describe the collection of believers or followers in three ways. First, believers in general. This is like the church universal. 
Secondly, believers in a region. And thirdly, believers in a specific place. For example, this letter was written to the church in the city of Ephesus. As a starting point, you could say the church is this. The assembly, both locally and universally, of believers in Jesus Christ. As the church was birthed and evolved, it had leaders and a leadership structure to oversee them. And as a chosen leader by God, Paul preached the good news of Jesus. People believed, churches were established, and leaders were set in place to guide and oversee. We have record of Paul writing about this to one of those he mentored, whom Paul had left behind in one of their missions. In Titus we read, This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. The NIV says, straighten out what was left and finished. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The church is a recognizable group connected by their common faith in Jesus that has a recognized set of leaders. The church was seen as wanting or incomplete without those leaders. The leaders are given to lead the people, teach them, and protect them. They are referred to as elders or shepherds, pastors, or overseers to whom God gives authority. That can be a problem. In places of privilege, we have seen so much abuse of power and positions of authority, haven't we? Church leaders, once highly esteemed, are now by many lumped together with politicians, seen as those who don't live in the real world and may not have your best interests in mind. They're in it for themselves. I mean, search for it. You can find examples quite easily. But from Scripture, church leaders were to be put into that position because everyone, both outside the church and in the church, recognized their character and integrity. As Paul lists out to Titus, above reproach, substance over style, and they were put into their position to serve. Paul called himself a minister, which means literally a servant. I've seen and experienced abuses of power within the Christian church, and I wish it wasn't so. And if that has happened to you, I am so sorry. But I have also had the privilege of knowing and working with leaders within the church who love Jesus and want nothing better than for the people they lead to really know Jesus and walk with him more fully. And they are willing to pay a cost and lay down their lives for that to happen. These are the kind of leaders appointed by God and necessary for the church to be what God intends. As I broaden the definition further, the church, the assembly of believers in Jesus Christ, led by called leaders, committed in community as they live out God's mission for his glory. Let me bring you back to Ephesians 3, verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The word mystery does not mean something mysterious, obscure, or puzzling. It means to be hidden. Like when a car company is very protective that their new special design does not go public before they want it to be shown. So they keep it under wraps, 
hidden from the public view until the proper time when it is unveiled or revealed. So what is so special that God would keep it under wraps in history until he chose to reveal it? The makeup of the church. Verse 6 of this chapter makes it explicit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God's plan, God's big deal, is the church. That through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile will become members of the same body we call the church, all nations in community. I can't help but think that some of you might be disappointed by that. Like, you are underwhelmed. That's it? The mystery? You know why that is? What, why it seems underwhelming to us? is because we, we really know, don't know or we've forgotten our place in God's story. We may be acquainted with our present and our future, but sometimes innocently or even arrogantly, we have forgotten our past. I wish you could hear the story of a man I knew when I was in grad school. His name was Philip. I wish you could hear his story of hardship, how he lived under an oppressive regime in his eastern country, and under fear, and hear him describe the terrible conditions and the great risk he took to flee for his life by boat at night to another land. He was somehow looking for another country, a new citizenship. I wish you could know and feel his state of hopelessness and desperation. If you, like me, are not Jewish, spiritually speaking, without Christ, that was us. The promises of God and relationship with him was through his covenant with the Jewish people. They were the chosen ones. We were excluded. No citizenship, no rights. What would it be like to be without hope, without God? That was our past. But God, God is the greatest storyteller. And in the mystery of God, as you read back from the front to the back in the Bible, there is a point in the story where everything changes. It wasn't that the Jews did not expect Gentiles to be able to come to God. A Gentile could become a proselyte and undergo the Jewish rites. But what no one saw coming, the surprise of God's grace. And if you've ever felt unworthy or beyond God's love or not good enough, you need to see this. The surprise of God's grace was that through Jesus Christ and what seemed to many to be just an insignificant man dying on the cross, through this person, the Son of God, Jesus, through him, rejected by both Jew and Gentile, he would make a way of salvation for all including those who worshipped other gods and persecuted and hated God's chosen people, undeserving as they were. God reconciles the unreconcilable. What no one saw coming was that Gentiles would not become Jews, Jews would not become Gentiles, but together both Jew and Gentile would become a new, united people in the person of Jesus Christ called the church. And these people groups, typically divided with great animosity towards one another in Jesus, would become a loving, unified, committed community. Jesus gave his life for this. It is the church that Jesus died for. Think about how partisan our world is, how divided and torn. I mean, this community was like bringing together Democrats and Republicans together, vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, progressives and NDPers under the banner of a greater person and cause, Jesus and his mission for the church. And it did happen. 
As you read in the book of Acts, you, you, you see the church take shape from the beginning and you see them struggle with this new reality, but there are those pockets, there's these times when they get it right. This says Paul in verse 10 of Ephesians 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's so easy to lose sight of our place and the place of the church in the story of God. Church? No, ho-hum. Take it or leave it from a human perspective. But God thinks of the church differently. Elsewhere, Jesus himself says that he will build the church and the very gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Here Paul says, as the church comes together, Jew and Gentile, and live and speak according to the gospel, the manifest wisdom of God is made known, not just to the people around us, but also to the cosmos, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm, angels and demons. The scholar John Stott says this, it is if a great drama is being enacted, history is the theater, the world is the stage, and the church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play and he directs and produces it, act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It is not that we are to preach to those in the heavens, but our very existence and lifestyle as the one church of Jesus Christ is an audiovisual of the many-faceted, beautiful, glorious, gracious wisdom of God. It would seem that the angels who have spent their existence in the presence of God marvel, and the hostile world of the demonic are reminded of their defeat at the cross and shudder because of the church. Church, the people that Jesus loved and died for in order to make it possible. The church, central to the plan and purpose of God, both in the seen and the unseen world. If God loves the church, I've got to love the church. If the church is important to God, despite my imperfect experience and all the other things that I could give importance to, the church has to be oh so important to me. Not just out there in theory, in a place somewhere in this time, the local church. For me, that is Central Heights Church. And wherever you are, what is that for you? It's in the local church where I demonstrate my love and live out my commitment to God's church. It begins in the heart, and then it moves to the practical of time, talent, and treasure, as some people put it. A heart that loves will be necessary because this is not always gonna be easy. The church is a community of imperfect people. We need to keep that in mind. And we'll need to give time to this. Relationships are built over time. I mean, we found out we can do this over Zoom, and sometimes it's better online, but sometimes it's better in person. How we connect will likely be a mixture of that going forward. What is the same is that we must have time. Time to get to know one another and mutually strengthen one another who know Jesus so we can go and live as ambassadors to those who do not know Jesus. I mean, Sunday mornings keep us unified and on message, while community groups and threes and fours help us to make it personal. And we'll need to give our talents to this. And I'm using that word to say that each one of us is to steward the calling and gifting God has given us for the growth of the church and the mission of Jesus we are to carry out together. 
I need what you bring. You need what I bring so that collectively we are equipped to be the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And we'll need to give our treasure to this, specifically our money. Relevant Magazine did a piece showing that if all the churchgoers gave 10% of their income, it would be amazing what we could collectively accomplish. In the United States alone, it would release an extra $165 billion. Not only would the local church flourish, but we could seriously address issues of global hunger, illiteracy, and water and sanitation issues, to be, for example. The church is called to be blessed, to be a blessing. And when our hearts are in it, we will give and give financially. Time, talent, treasure. Today, I guess I'm pleading with us not to abandon the church, but to work for its health. Yes, the, the church has its flaws. We are not there yet. In a sense, we never will be. We will struggle with our imperfections until Jesus comes again and sin will be done away with then forever. But in the meantime, I am asking you to consider your response to the church itself needs to be part of its solution, its improvement, its renovation, its revival. In his book, Renaissance, Os Guinness talks about the mixture of the history of the church he talks about the demise of the church in the West today, but he also talks about the hope that we can have as we look to Jesus, the one who loves the church and never forsakes it. And I want to close with this prayer for you and I as we consider our role in relationship to God and his church. High King of heaven, Lord of the years and sovereign over time and history, grant to us such an overpowering knowledge of who you are that our trust in you may be unshakable. Grant to us, too, a sufficient understanding of the signs of the times in which we live, that we may know how to serve your purposes in our generation and more truly be your people in our world today. To that end, O oh Lord, revive us again and draw us closer to yourself and to each other where there is false contentment with our present condition. Sow in us a holy restlessness. Where there is discouragement, grant us fresh hearts. Where there is despair, be our hope again. And for your sake, empower us to be your salt and light in the world. And thus your force for the true human flourishing of your shalom. In the name of Jesus, amen.